Good morning. Oh, I love it when you talk back. Excellent. Hopefully some of you will have not yet closed your Bibles, but if you have, we're going back into John 21. When I first realized that this would be the passage I was speaking on, I thought, everyone knows that. Oh dear, famous last words. It's always a challenge to just go under the surface a little bit. And I hope you're ready to come on that undersurface journey with me this morning. I wonder if you've ever noticed how emotions can take us from great highs to horrible lows and then back again. Real roller coaster. Life is often like that, isn't it? And if anyone had ever been on a roller coaster, it was the disciples of Jesus just after what we now call Holy Week. They didn't call it Holy Week. I don't know if that's an Anglican tradition or just one of those things. But they had gone through the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where everyone's hailing their master as the new king. Then they drop down to what we now call Monday Thursday, that horrible night of the Lord's Supper. Precious, but it ended up really horrible. Then Good Friday, though to them it could have been anything but good. And then the wait... He's actually dead. Oh, uh, now what? Trying to remember some of the things he said. And then the resurrection. Fantastic. He's back. But the strange thing that happens then is that whereas before his death and resurrection, Jesus had been pouring in, pouring in, pouring in, almost 24-7. Now he's flitting in and out. If you were looking very closely, I think it's verse 14, it tells us this is only the third time that the disciples had seen him since the resurrection. What? They've been literally on his coattails, and now he comes in, he goes out. He comes in, he goes out. What is going on? Those few times, once he came to them very unexpectedly when they were all together except one person, and that was Thomas. He leaves... And a week goes past, and they're not with him. And then suddenly, he's there again, this time with Thomas. Then he goes off and does some other miracles elsewhere, and they haven't seen him around. What is going on? It's almost as if he's changed his modus operandi. Nice little phrase. His method of working. What's going on? I sat with this a long time and thought about it. And before his resurrection, sorry, before his crucifixion, Jesus was preparing to be the sacrifice that would bring salvation. After the resurrection, he doesn't have to prepare for that because he's done it. So what's he preparing for now? His ascension. He hasn't spelled it out to the disciples. Look, guys, I've got 40 days and I've got a lot to do and it's not all about you. I've got other things to do. That's what I'm preparing for. He just flitted in and out. 
he is actually preparing them for a time when he will not be physically present. But the Holy Spirit will. And it was critical that that happens, that Jesus had to go for the Holy Spirit to come. Why? Now, if you will excuse my phrasing, I'm not in any way being disrespectful, but it was like me going like that to John. If I bring my hand in, he can shake it. Yeah? Like a tag team. Jesus goes up. Holy Spirit comes down. But until he went up, the Spirit was not coming down. So any anxiety they had about, why he's gone? Remember, angels had to say, look, stop panicking. The same Jesus you saw go up will come back, but the Holy Spirit has to come. Now, many commentators look at this whole thing about Peter going fishing with a lot of condemnation. They're almost censuring him. <gasps> What's he doing? He's going back to fishing. The reality is, many of us have times in our lives which are incredibly difficult. Sometimes you might even call them traumatic. And we often go back to the familiar. We go back to the things we thought we knew. Yeah? It's not that Peter's abandoning his faith. He's going back to something he thought he could do. Now, there's nothing wrong in going back to the familiar. As long as you don't stay there very long. It's a place to visit. It's not a place to put down a mortgage. Because God has more things for you to do. But he understands that you need to breathe, take stock, figure out, if you can, what's going on, and then move on. Sometimes we need it like a comfort blanket. Those of you who've had children often will know that sometimes they go back to the thing that gives them some sense of security. It takes a while, but we need to recognize that we will be able to stand again and that we will be able to move forwards. We dare not try and go backwards. Also, Peter has just cleverly demonstrated that the familiar is not always a fruitful place. I can fish, yeah, except tonight. I know how to fish, but nothing's happening. He had determined in his heart, I'm going to go back and do something that I can do really well. That's good. This new scary stuff I'm not bothering with, but I can fish. He could have done it in the dark. So he did. He went fishing at night. Now, I had to look this up because, surprisingly, I know nothing about fishing. I don't know if any of you know about fishing, so I looked this up. And the reason often anglers go fishing and fishermen go fishing is that there are less people around. Surprise, surprise. Less people means less noise, and fish respond to noise. How many anglers have you said, shh, I'm fishing? No, fish don't like noise because that represents danger. It's cooler, which is great for the fishermen. And so many fish are much more active at night. It should have been a doddle, but not that night. 
I think Peter and the disciples had to understand that in their own strength, they were powerless. But with God, they could do anything. This was not a time to go backwards. So morning dawns, and they are tired and frustrated. Have you ever had the unfortunate circumstances of having a really bad night? And you wake up more tired than when you went to bed, and you're very frustrated. I see a few nods, even a few giggles around. You know what it's like? You're frustrated. Well, that was a waste of time. And suddenly, there's this person on land, and that's important. They're still on the sea. This person's on land. And he asks them, caught any fish? Oh, there were words they could have said. <laughs> so frustrated. And they just said, no. Well, how would you have said it? No! Not even a little. Nothing. But they just said, no. So what does this man do that they don't recognize? Be all sorry and compassionate. No, he says, well, if you did it this way, you catch fish. Have you ever had well-meaning acquaintances who are on dry land and you're in the middle of it and you've done everything you know how to do and you still haven't caught any fish and they think, oh, just do this. He's a landlubber. What does he know? And then we are told... The disciple who loved Jesus, or Jesus loved rather, which is actually John's way of saying me, but he doesn't like to say it quite like that. The disciple that Jesus loved shouted out, it's the Lord. What? Hey, I, oh, the one who uh, once tried, is he really here? And they're talking amongst themselves, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. But it's one thing to recognize, it's another thing to react. Peter jumped in the water. The minute he was told, it's the Lord, he was off. Interesting. Sometimes someone will tell you something, they have recognized something, and you agree, but you need to respond. You're the one who needs to take action. Interesting as well, having caught such a large shoal of fish, Jesus invites them to bring some of the catch for breakfast. Now, it sounds obvious, but Jesus has not only performed a miracle, but invited them to share in the blessing of that miracle. He's a good God. So they have bread and fish. In the reading, it sounded a little bit like another form of communion to me, bread and fish, rather than wine and bread. Interesting. Jesus is inviting them to share communion with them. And they chat and they talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And then Jesus says, um, Peter, or rather, maybe we need to look at that a little bit. They'd not had a heart to heart since Peter betrayed him. Jesus is taking him one on one. Come on. Verse 15, have you got it in front of you? Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? What does Jesus not do? He doesn't, you get a Fredo. If I had one, you could have one. He doesn't call him Peter. Oh, what's changed? In Matthew 16, when Jesus called the disciples initially, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And it's Peter who says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's the point where Simon Peter becomes Peter. Now, this is a little Greek lesson. Are you ready? Simon Peter... Simon is Simon, but the word in Greek at that point is Petra, P-E-T-R-A. Any of you who remember Blue Peter days? Yeah, Petra. And it it's a diminutive of the word rock. In colloquial language, we would say that Peter's nickname was Simon Pebble. A bit like the Flintstones. Simon Pepper is small. But then Jesus expands it and say, I will call you Peter, which is Petros, which means a rock. So Jesus is saying, I'm promoting you in your thinking from a pebble to a rock. But now, Jesus doesn't call him Peter anymore. Oh dear. A contrast is being made between what he was as a, almost the chief disciple to what he is now. And Jesus takes him back to his original calling. He was only a fisherman, but he had a divine revelation of Jesus as Messiah. Also, I believe Jesus quite deliberately called the question of Peter, do you love me? Do you remember? Yeah, three times. That was no accident. Jesus is saying, we had a problem three times. Little did Peter know that there was going to be a solution three times. Peter couldn't say, I'm sorry, I know you forgive me, and I won't do it again, and, 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 uh. No, this is not the child. This is the man who has to own up to the fact that he, he made a mistake, a big mistake. It can't be covered over, it's real. But, and it's an important but, Jesus is giving Peter a chance to turn. To turn from the man who denied Christ and become a man of far greater purpose than mere fishing. And the purpose of repentance is not that we deny our sin, but rather we bring it under the loving hand of forgiveness offered by Jesus, own up, and not just say we're sorry, but determine never to do it again, to 180 turn degrees in the opposite direction. Not just to recognize, oh, I need to repent, but to actually do it. The other thing Jesus does not do is tell Peter this, he's disloyal. I think I would have. You denied me. He doesn't do that. Rather, he's going to give him a specific direction and a brand new purpose. So he asks these questions. 
Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. And he says it again. You know I love you. And the third one, even more strong, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. That's gutsy stuff. He's acknowledging that Jesus can tear him apart and see inside and know everything. And he's got to now tell the truth. We should not flaze under the gaze of Christ. He's a loving God, but he wouldn't be loving if he let us get away with everything, would he? No. He knows us completely. He loves us completely. Now, Jesus responds three times. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep. I was chatting this through briefly with my sister yesterday. And her eyes kind of went, oh. And she said, I thought Jesus was just saying the same things three times. A lot of people do. No, 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 no. Again, we need a little bit of Greek on this, so bear with me. First of all, feed my lambs. It's interesting, in all three responses, Peter is challenged to look after the flock of God. Wherever they may be, whatever they may do, and however you feel, you look after them. And actually, he would do this admirably in the days to come. This is where it started, caring for others. Have any of you ever watched the, I think it's Channel 5 program, Our Yorkshire Farm? Yeah, I love Our Yorkshire Farm. It's great. It's a documentary about a family, a shepherd called Clive and his wife, Amanda. Couldn't think, I had it here, and I couldn't think what it was. They live on 2,000 acres of Yorkshire Hill Farm, looking after 1,000 sheep. And boy, it gets interesting. And it really shows you that it's not just fluffy, fluffy. It's blooming hard work. Now, the feeding of lambs has to be meticulous. It's not always straightforward. And I watched one particular episode, and this is a government health warning, or maybe just a pat health warning coming along here. And in this episode, Amanda, the mum, has to show her young children, I'm reading to make sure I've got everything right in this, how to make one lamb adopt another. Ewes often have two lambs in a pregnancy. But one of them often dies either at birth or shortly afterwards. Other ewes have triplets. But they cannot provide enough milk for three sheep. So one of the lambs is abandoned by the mother. Now that's quite dangerous now. They have no way of being fed. So what a shepherd does is this. This is the health warning. They take the dead lamb from the one who had twins. Sorry about this. And they skin it. And they take the skin minus the legs and the head and they wrap it around the triplet who's been orphaned and abandoned. And they take it to the mum whose twin died. You got it? What does the mum do? She smells her twin on another lamb. And what she does is she draws the lamb in. Oh, you must be mine. Oh, what a picture of salvation. 
gave me a whole new meaning as to God's adoption. The Lamb Christ Jesus died, and we end up spiritually wrapped in him, and we have the fragrance of Jesus on us. And Father says, you're one of mine. Oh, that's the level of care we need. Sometimes it's very gory and messy when we have to deal with baby Christians who do things which you think, oh, no. Okay, let me explain. Let me help. Jesus is challenging Peter, not to a cuddly, warm, nine-to-five ministry. He has to watch over, nourish, protect all who come to faith and need such care in the early stages of Christian growth. And the word here for feed is a Greek word, bosco, which literally means to provide pasture. The shepherd has to provide all the nourishments. And Jesus is challenging Peter to do that. Actually, I think this morning, we've had a really brilliant example of that challenge from Evie. What are we doing for our lambs? Could you just give yourself 10 seconds to say, Lord, yes or no? Oh, you've gone very, very quiet on me. I didn't prime Evie to say that. But it's a need. We need people who will care and feed our lambs. The second thing he challenges him to do, oh, I must move on, take care of my sheep. We've got a different Greek word now. It's not feed, it's take care of, and the word is poimanio, which actually means to tend or supervise. Now, in terms of sheep, they will be walking in a flock. In that part of the world, the shepherd walks at the front, not the back, so you have to keep following the shepherd. But they are not being fed by the shepherd so much as being tended and supervised, and this is important, as they feed themselves. You get it? Now, as a, a human family, they move from being fed with a bottle into being fed maybe in a high chair or sat at a table. And they, <coughs> in quotes, feed themselves. You're in cafes, some of them feed the floor, but some of them feed themselves. They also start using the no word a lot. I want you to eat this. No! 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 Not eating that. And the parent knows what they need. I have a little friend, not so far away, when she comes into the church, wanders down to my office, and goes, I said, morning, Abigail. <laughs> She's got a great pointing finger. But I've seen her sometimes go towards Jason in cafe and go, tea cake. Tea cake. And I think if Steph let her, she would have tea cake every single time she came in. They are loving parents and they don't let that happen every time, just sometimes. 
when we are looking after and helping God's people, there are sheep who in this sermon are like between when they've been weaned and into maturity, and that's a long period, where they have to be supervised and then let go of the hand, walk by themselves, choose where they want to go, understand what no means, understand what yes means, you will do this, right through puberty, adolescence, into adulthood, into a little bit older than just adulthood. It's a huge spectrum. And Peter was told that part of his ongoing purpose was to tend and supervise those who are no longer infants in Christ. And that's hard. If you're going to mentor and shepherd somebody, you need to be with them at all those stages that that involves. Maybe God will ask you to help someone through to full spiritual adulthood. Do you know, it's an amazing, amazing privilege when a pastor has people in his flock who then go on to ministry as pastors themselves because they've followed the journey. It's wonderful. They have to teach them that their dependence is no longer on them as a pastor, but their dependence should be fully on God, but they are there to help. And that's what it's all about. Feed my sheep. Jesus asks Peter the third time, and he seems a bit upset the question has come a third time, but Jesus actually goes a bit further this time. Feed my sheep, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus is reminding Peter that sheep eventually get old. And they sometimes need the care they first received as the infant. It's gone full circle. Tragically, so do we. <laughs> and it's a hard thing. Hard thing to watch your parents grow old. It's a hard thing to realize that you're heading in the same direction. But the word feed, feed for sheep, is still, we're back with the infants. The word bosco, to provide pasture. And I know that there are some here, and I've experienced it myself, when you have family who are elderly and frail, you do have to feed them. And it somehow feels very strange. But I'm reminded of Psalm 23. Verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And I think for many people approaching the end of their life here on earth, they may feel in the presence of enemies, of health issues, I think, personally, dementia is one of the cruelest of enemies because you have a person living but not with you. Death itself may seem to be an enemy. But the psalmist reminds us that at all times, God himself prepares to feed us, the great shepherd. And he will bring the table to us. That's a good thought, isn't it? This huge new direction for Peter is not, therefore, to look out for what he does and to keep his own spirit sweet. He's charged with looking after the whole spectrum of God's family, young adults and elders. It's no small thing in that early establishment of the early church. But Peter rose to the challenge. There was never any going back. He became its figurehead. He was able to deal with tough issues. 
His spirit was malleable when God challenged him on his thinking, particularly in terms of the gospel going to the Gentiles. He provided a solid basis of leadership for the fledgling church through exceptionally difficult times. Remember, these were in the days of Emperor Nero. And very soon, the church would be spread abroad. As I quickly draw this to a conclusion. I wonder if you've ever suffered the crippling trauma of highs and lows, followed by extreme disappointment. During such time, have you said or thought things you most definitely should not have said or thought? Now, sometimes our reaction can be understandable to this. We hurt. But we are nevertheless encouraged in this passage to face it squarely. Today might be a moment to say sorry. Now, I know that I'm not a proper Anglican yet. There's still too much Pentecost running through my blood, I think. So I haven't learnt the confessions. I have to read them from the screen because I can't remember the words. So I know we've said sorry this morning. But you know, there are times when we need to use our own words. I think many parents go to church, what do you say? Sorry! What are you sorry for? Um, 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 I only know it's this reactive. If I say the word, it's going to be okay without understanding what they're sorry for. But if a child comes up and says, I'm sorry I did this, I didn't mean to do it, and I promise I won't do it again. Whoa! Amazing. I think sometimes Father needs us to have that same approach. Do you worry that God will dismiss you because of what you've said or thought or done? No. He will bring restoration and purpose to you, just as he did to Peter. I remember, tragically, it's now decades ago, I used to be a teacher in Gallywood Junior School up um, St. Michael's. Yeah. And one morning, I was on playground duty. Always a joy. And I went out, and one of my little girls from my class was there, and she came up to me, Miss, Miss, Miss. And, yes, what? When I grow up, I want to be a teacher. Oh, you can't think so. I've inspired this child. <laughs> she thinks I'm wonderful. And then she said, to be a teacher, all you need is a red pen and know how to do a tick or a cross, and I've already got the red pen. <laughs> You know, when we have done wrong, God allows us a moment to reflect on it. And then he adds his own red cross. It's not shaped like an X. It's shaped like Calvary. And if there was a list of all we'd ever done wrong, and we have said sorry about it, and we could see it in a book, there would be cross, cross, cross. It's covered. It's covered all the way through. It needs genuine repentance, but then he will cover it. I wonder this morning, could you become a spiritual shepherd or shepherdess, deliberately choosing to care for others, caring for them faithfully and delighting to watch them as they grow? Because when you respond in genuine repentance, 
you can be confident that you will receive the anointing and blessing of God for new purposes. What were the last two words of that reading? Jesus had gone through all of this. And what does he say to Peter? Follow me. When had he said that before? When he, when he first met him. Follow me. And Jesus is saying, okay, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, and now we're back. We're now in a reset position, but you've learned from the journey. I challenge you this morning. Check if you need to say sorry. Check that you know what you're saying sorry for. Say it. And then get on with it. Don't let the past drag you down like an anchor. No. Jesus released Peter from all of that and said, now then, I've got a lot of work for you to do. Many other times in scriptures where a similar reaction happened. Not with Peter, but with others. Do you remember Elijah in the cave? I'm the only one left. There's no... What are you doing here, God says? Oh, I've got work for you to do. And he gave him a three-point plan. Get out and do it. God doesn't say, oh, because you've been like that, I'm going to let you go now because you obviously can't be trusted. The job description just changed. You've got a new purpose. Go for it. But you need to come, understand you're forgiven, and then go where he calls you to go. Amen? Amen.